to understand what we're going to look at today. And Lord, I pray I wouldn't misrepresent your word. I pray, God, that you give me grace to explain this, Lord, and I pray we would see the, the big picture that unfolds throughout Hebrews and in this passage. Lord, we ask for your grace and your guidance. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open up to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. One of uh, the challenges and one of the joys of preaching uh, verse by verse is that you get to passages like this. And I can almost assure you, if you preach topically, you never talk about Melchizedek. And it's a passage that is important. It's one that frames the entire priesthood of Jesus. A few months ago, back in the first week of March, I needed a, uh, a new computer. And I was looking, and uh, I, I was trying to find one on a Facebook marketplace, which is always a little nerve-wracking. And normally, you get, a, uh, you get a conversation going with somebody, and they never respond again. It's just real nice. You never hear from them. And, uh, but I talked to this guy, and, and it was a really good deal. And I was immediately suspicious. Why are you giving me a good deal? And uh, so I called Apple. He had Apple Care on it. And I was like, look. And they were like, well, we can't technically tell you that. And I was like, well, I technically need you to tell me that, you know? Like, we need to figure this out, because if I buy this computer, is it going to be covered? And they finally were, like, hesitant. And I finally got somebody to say, look, it is covered. And I finally got somebody, the guy had given me this story that was pretty far-fetched, but I gave her the story and she said, look, all I can tell you is in looking at the record, this guy seems legit. And I was like, you're telling me that everything I'm telling you sort of adds up to the record of what you got in the notes. And she's like, yes. So I felt better about it, but you still don't know how that's going to go down when you meet up with somebody you don't know. So I was like, uh, being the uh, bold and courageous person I was, I was like, Luke, come on, let's go to the church. We're meeting somebody to buy a computer. And uh, we get in the parking lot, and uh, he shows up. Guy couldn't have been friendlier. Wonderful man. Jewish fella. And um, he came in. He came in. He was helpful. He was kind. He was courteous. And we sat down, and um, I immediately was like, man, this is great. He was, uh, we just struck up a conversation. I've been to Israel several times, and I was telling him how much I loved his country, how much I enjoyed being in Israel. We were talking about different things about the land. And, and then as he was getting ready to leave, it was just, you know, I, I, I can say uh, this is not a story to lift myself up. There's been times where I've neglected sharing the gospel with somebody just for the same reasons that you're tempted to, out of fear, out of uh, fear of rejection. We've all been there. It's a bad reason, but we face that. But I looked at him and I said, man, I got to talk to you about something. He was standing right in the middle of that room. And I said, man, I said, I got to tell you a story. I said, I wrote my Bible thesis in my Bible major in college on Isaiah 53. And I wrote it on a rabbinic, a rabbinic understanding of Isaiah 53 in the times of Christ. And I said, you know, I said, um, that was fascinating. And I said, man, I said, uh, I know that this may seem just like a chance encounter, I said, but, but I have no doubt that, that you're designed to meet with me today in this room and that this is under the hand of God. And I compel you. I said, I compel you to see the Old Testament claims that Jesus is the Messiah. I said, I compel you with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He respectfully looked at me 
He was kind. Um, we, we got in the car, and I was like, Luke, we got to pray for this guy. We got to pray. We got to pray that God will work. We left, and uh, within about 24 hours, I saw a messenger box message come up, messenger inbox uh, notification. And I think I was driving, so I didn't really read it right there. And I pulled up. When I stopped, I looked at it. And immediately, it was this long, long interaction. That started about a three-day interaction. We probably wrote like three or four pages each to each other. And one of the things that came out of that interaction, sadly, was basically the summary statement that your Jesus does not meet the requirements of Messiah according to the Jewish law. Sad, but it gives me a better understanding of how to navigate in Hebrews because the author of Hebrews is not writing to converted Gentiles. He's writing to Jews that have come to Christ. He's writing in a cultural setting that is, we believe, predates the destruction of the temple. The temple still exists, we believe. 66, 67 AD, the temple's not gonna be destroyed by Titus and the Romans until 70 AD. And all of these people facing persecution, facing martyrdom, are not only tempted to abandon the faith out of reasons of persecution and martyrdom, but they're also, believe, I believe, being challenged by other Jews that your Messiah is not a legitimate Messiah because your Messiah has no claim over the high priest. Your Messiah does not come from the tribe of Levi. He doesn't descend from Aaron. He comes from Judah and thus has no claim over the priesthood. And what we've seen so far, the author of Hebrews went into Hebrews chapter five, verse four, Hebrews chapter five, verse 10. He took a parenthesis from chapter five, verse 11 to chapter six, verse 20. And in that section, he paused, but at the very end of chapter six, verse 20, it's like he got off the exit or went right back onto the on-ramp and was like, I've got more to tell you about this man named Melchizedek. This morning, we're looking at a passage, one of the most baffling passages in all the Bible, the mystery of Melchizedek. I misspelled this guy's name more times than you can imagine. So the mystery is not only in how to spell Melchizedek, but the mystery is in identifying who he is and the significance in what he brings. I'm going to look at three questions today. As I was studying this, I'm like you, you all. I mean, um, you, you study the text. You try to lay out like what, where the text is going, and you try to pray about the text. And, and, and you really rely on those that have gone before you. And, and I went after so many different resources. And, and in looking into this and learning as I went through, I, I, I really, the questions that popped out to me in, in trying to compile everything, three questions. And, and the questions are this. I'm going to give them to you so you'll know where we're going. It's, um, where is he, number one? Where is he? Number two, who is he? Number three, what is his significance? Where is he? Who is he? What is his significance? We start out, where is he? This is sort of more in line of the where's Waldo. Where is this guy? Where is this figure 
Where is this person? Where is whatever this is that's called Melchizedek? And what we're gonna do this morning as we start on this point is we're going to trace through the Bible where we find him. It's significant. The first time he's mentioned is actually in Genesis chapter 14. If you got your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 14. 4,000 years ago is when he emerges. 4,000 years ago, and what's important about this is that he appears in a very interesting time. In Genesis 14, Lot has just gone towards Sodom. And to sum it all up because of the sake of time, Lot was captured. There were, in the Transjordan, there were kings, but the kings sometimes are not the way we think of kings. Look at verse eight of chapter 14. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of, 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 of Siddim. Keep reading. With Shador Lamor, king of Elam, Tidal king of Goim, Amraphel king of Shinar, this is not easy, and Arioch king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Now that's the key context. Lot has been kidnapped by these individuals. And you might be thinking of Abraham as just this religious Bedouin, but we get a different picture that emerges right here. Look at verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Anir. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, I love this, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus, then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. What's going on? Nighttime, Abram is not playing around. They've got Lot, and, and, and he goes to these 318 men. And it's like, I mean, you get a sense of like a military operation, literally. That literally by the night, these 318 trained guys, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you're talking about some tough dudes. And they go out there and they go get Lot, the women and the children, and they get a big spoil of the battle. And they win. They do what they got to do. Overnight, they get them. And now we have the context for what we're looking at. This is the context that a guy named Melchizedek is going to surface 4,000 years ago, 2000 BC. And notice the context, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of 
Shador Lamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and here he is. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. As we get started, let's make quick observations of where he's found. He's found in Genesis 14. What do we learn here? Uh, first of all, we see that first mentioning, he's king of Salem. We're going to look at a passage in a moment. Salem is known as Zion. Salem's another name for Jerusalem. He's king of Jerusalem. Not only that, he's defined and described as priest of God most high. But what did he do? He came out bringing what? Bread and wine. Not only that, he ends up blessing Abram. He blesses Abram. We read that. And then he speaks consistent with scripture. He speaks not in a pluralistic way, but a monotheistic way. And he says, speaking of El Elyon, God most high, he says, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies. And before that, he says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. He gives a very orthodox statement. He doesn't give a Canaanite statement. He doesn't give a, a foreign God in the area that were representative of all these other kings, he gives a statement that reveals he's clued in by revelation from the Holy Spirit who the God of Israel is. That's important. The next time we see him is a thousand years later. We move from 2000 BC to 1000 BC. And now we find ourselves in the book of Psalm, Psalm 110. A couple of things about Psalm 110 that you got to remember. Psalm 110 is the passage that is the most quoted Old Testament passage throughout the New Testament. That's fascinating. I didn't know that until we got into Hebrews. If somebody said, what is the most quoted Old Testament passage in, and throughout the whole New Testament, it's the seven verses in Psalm 110, which tells us what? Well, it tells us something because if you go there, you look at verse one, um, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What's really interesting is this is the passage in the gospels where Jesus basically says, you know, talking to the Pharisees, you know, how they're confused. He's explaining. The question was, how could David have a son yet refer to his son as his Lord? The answer was the fact that Jesus was not only the son of man, he was the son of God. He not only descended from David, he was preexistent, eternal, one in nature, one in substance with the father. He was the son of God. Therefore, it trapped the Pharisees. They didn't understand what in the world's going on. It revealed their blindness of heart. But the key to this passage is understanding that Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. It's messianic. It's speaking of Christ. It's speaking of Jesus. 
And in verse four, notice what it says. He comes down and he makes this statement. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Not after the order of Aaron, not through the tribe of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. And what do we learn from Genesis 14? That before there even was a tribe of Levi, that Jesus's priesthood right is traced back to this line, not the line of Levi and not through Aaron. So we see a couple of passages. The next time it's mentioned is a thousand years later. Isn't that fascinating? We go from 2000 BC to 1000 BC up until around 65, 66, 67 AD. Another 1000 throw in 65 years. And in Hebrews chapter five, we've already read this, but look at it again. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made Sorry, I went too fast. He did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he says, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There he is. The next time we see him is in verse seven of Hebrews five. In Hebrews five, verse seven it goes down, speaking of Jesus, speaking of his right to the priesthood. What do we learn? We learn in this verse 10, being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So first question, hopefully we've answered, where is he? The second question we've got to look at this morning, who is he? Who is he? And this is one that is very difficult. Um, we've got, I think, three major viewpoints. There's always going to be more viewpoints. These tend to be the most common. And I want us to read verse chapter 7 now because we now have to supplement what we know from Genesis 14, what we've learned in Psalm 110, what he's already stated in chapter 5, verse 6 and verse 10. And now we're in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, what do we read? Read that with me if you would. In chapter 7, verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God. To this point, everything we've read, we learned in Genesis chapter 14. Met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Does that not sound like a good summary of Genesis 14, 17, 18, 19, 20? It does. And, and you keep going here. We, we learned something though. We learned that his name is distinct. You know, in verse two, and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything, just as we read in chapter 14 of Genesis. But now he gives a translation of his name. He gives a translation of his name. And, and I want you to see this. Like, he tells us that his name refers to what? Righteousness and peace. 
righteousness and peace. We see he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. That's two pieces of information we haven't seen yet in all that we can assume about or all that we can gather about Melchizedek. We knew that he was king of Salem. We knew that he blessed Abram. We knew that he received a tithe from Abram, but we haven't learned yet that he this, that this name that he's referred to is referring to righteousness and that Salem is referring to peace. So that's new information. You may be thinking, again, how do we know that Salem is referring to Jerusalem? Because you may be thinking, like most people, this is very mysterious. What's happening here? You got this king of Salem. You've got this blessing. You've got this bread and wine. You've got Abram coming back from battle. You have all these things happening. Who is this person? Who is this whatever who has appeared on the scene as Abram leaves and now gives the spoils of the battle to this man named Melchizedek? Psalm 76, 2 is where we learn about Salem. His abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion, which is clearly talking about Jerusalem. And so we see the meaning of his name. We continue, verse three, this is where it gets really tricky. Look at three. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, before we even begin to look at verses four through 10, this is where we begin to take a stab at who in the world is this? And it, depending on how you look at verse three, some would say this is clearly not an ordinary human. And if you said, why? They would say, well, duh. They would say he's without father. He's without mother. He's without genealogy. He has neither, you know, uh, he, he, there's neither beginning of days nor end of life. And they would say whatever he is or whoever he is, he's clearly not human. And some people at this point have proposed that Melchizedek was an angelic being. An angelic being. The first thought here is this, is like if you take it literal to mean literally, that's exactly what we're looking at. What's the one thing we know about angels? Are they eternal beings? No. Angels are what type of beings? Starts with a C. They're created beings. So I don't really even understand really how that view gains a lot of popularity. Another passage that makes it really problematic that they're angels. Hebrews 5.1, for every high priest chosen from whom? Among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. I don't think they're angels. The next view that holds more popularity than the angel view is that this is what we would call a Christophany. I tell you, this is, uh, this is not for the faint of heart, is it? A Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you say, wait a minute, is there any evidence of such types of appearances? And we could say, I think so. Because we see in Genesis 17, 
that the angel of the Lord appears to Abram, and we see what? That he appears as El Shaddai and spoke to Abram just man to man, like, but, but, but obviously divine to man. So that's at least a possibility. People hold this view. It, it would go like this. I was reading one statement from somebody who was expressing this viewpoint. And the idea would go like this. It would be, um, if Genesis 14 describes the theophany or Christophany, then God the Son came to give Abraham his blessing, appearing as the king of righteousness. Um, some would go on, they would say this term order would ordinarily indicate a succession of priests holding the office. None are ever mentioned. However, in the long interval from Melchizedek to Christ, an anomaly that can be solved by assuming that Melchizedek and Christ are really the same person. Thus, the order is eternally vested in him and him alone. I understand where people come from that get that view. I don't think that's what he's saying. The first one is, is it angelic? I don't think that's it. The second one, is it a Christophany? Is Melchizedek a pre-incarnate revelation of Jesus Christ? Now, I think the best option is the third one. The third option is that Melchizedek is what we refer to in the Bible or in hermeneutics, which is the study of interpretation. I think Melchizedek is a type. And you may be like, a type of what? Good question. Good question. A type of what? You see what I'm saying? A type of what? Is he possibly a type of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. Is it possible that what the author is doing, he's taking a man who was born, a man that died, a man that really did have a genealogy, but what he includes through the penship, through the inerrancy of the Bible, because the Bible's inerrant, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit intended only for these details to be put on the paper. Because if more details were given about this man, Melchizedek, it would then blur the very type that was intended. You get the idea? It's sort of like, what if, this is the question, what if the intention of the author was to not give every detail of Melchizedek because the Holy Spirit intended to take this man that God made a king priest and to blur his details to the point that he had no mother, he had no father, he had no genealogy, he didn't have a record of his death. Therefore, in the way that he lived and in the way that he's recorded, he becomes a type of Christ. One of the reasons I think this is at least a considerable view, and this is where I land, is notice what he says in verse three. And notice the underlined word on the screen. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but what? Resembling the son of God. Have you ever noticed that if I hear you say the statement, hey, uh, imagine we're walking uh, downtown Scottsboro and I'm around the square and we're walking and I'm like, hey man, look over there. And you're like, what? 
I'm like, that resembles a car. What's one thing you can take to the bank? If it resembles a car, it's what? Not a car. Look right there, that's like a basketball. If it's like a basketball, it's not a basketball. It's like a basketball. It resembles a basketball. You get the idea. That right there is an incredibly important clue. In the ESV, it's the word resembling. In the New American Standard, it's the word like. It's the only time that word is used in the Old Testament in the Hebrew, or actually in the New Testament in the Greek, because this is Hebrew, is not the Old Testament. <laughs> so if you didn't know, New Testament is written in Greek, not Hebrew. But so, so what do we do with that? Another thing that I think is significant here, I was looking at this uh, text comparison. It doesn't say that the son of God was made like Melchizedek. It says Melchizedek was made like the son of God. There's a difference there. I think it's an important difference. So, so what do we do with this? I was reading about this and I was as confused as some of you are looking at me right now. And, uh, and so I think sometimes y'all don't realize that. I mean, I, I'm just like you, apart from the spirit of God, I, I mean, don't think that there's not passages that baffle me. It may look like that I have all this understanding, but I'm also, uh, have the privilege of being a minister and this is my full-time opportunity. So I think sometimes don't, don't, don't be scared off by this because we're learning together. But genealogy uh, one man said his point is that the Genesis account does not mention Melchizedek's parents or genealogy or when he was born or when he died, thereby providing a fitting type of what would be fleshed out in the qualifications of Christ. He goes on, he was in effect without genealogy. The point is Jesus's priesthood like Melchizedek's was based solely on the call of God not on heredity. Interesting. Jesus and Melchizedek were both appointed as priests of God most high. So we see that this could be referring to the fact that it's supposed to set it up. You see, the genealogy was huge. Remember in Ezra, when the priests were basically finding out they were eligible priests, it says here, also of the sons of the priests, the sons of, there's a lot of names. I'm gonna keep going here. Look at the next verse. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so what did they do when they couldn't find their genealogical records? They excluded them from the priesthood. Wait a minute, how in the world can Melchizedek not have a genealogy and not be kicked out because he comes from a different priesthood. And this priesthood is not based on genealogy. It's based on the call and appointment of God. That seems to be the idea. So three key questions. Where is he? Who is he? I'm not the authority. I believe he's a type. I believe when we look at Melchizedek, we're looking at a human type, a frail incomplete, non-perfect man, obviously, but a man that through his life, because God prescribed him to be so, 
becomes a type in which we learn about Christ. I want to read you something I forgot to just a second ago. What is a type? We can define, it says one, one uh, interpretation thing I found. We can define a type as a prophetic symbol because all types are representations of something yet future. More specifically, a type in scripture is a person or thing in the Old Testament that foreshadows a person or thing in the New Testament. That's interesting, isn't it? And so we, we'll spend more time on this next week, on the type part, when we get into verse 11. We're running out of time. When we get into verse 4, now we're asking a question, what is his significance? What is his significance? What is it about Melchizedek this morning? You may be thinking, wow, I picked a great day to come to church. We're talking about Melchizedek. Well, I think one of the wonders of Scripture is that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And the word of God is living and active. And today, I want you, I pray through this last point that this lesson, this message about Melchizedek that Hebrews, the author of Hebrews gives us, I pray you would see that it compels you to see the greatness and the superiority of Jesus like you never have before. Okay, so if we're gonna see him as a type, we need to start walking through some of the types that we see in Melchizedek that apply to Jesus. What are some things about this type that compel us to worship and adore Jesus? The first one, what did we learn in Hebrews 7, 2? We learned that his name corresponds with righteousness and corresponds with peace and the way that Abram received him, the way that Abram responded to him it seems to be not just his name, but it seems to be an indicator of his character. And just as he is a type of that which is to come, how much more, what we're gonna do is every time we say just as Melchizedek, we're gonna say this is Melchizedek and this is how he's portrayed, but look at how Jesus is portrayed. You see, one observation about Melchizedek is going to lead us to a greater observation about Christ. And that's how the type's working. It's like, look at him, but oh, look at him. Look at him, but oh, would you look at him? Look at him, but look at him. It's the first one, righteousness and peace. Righteousness and peace. I'll tell you, this, this is phenomenal because, you know, what do we learn in about the peace, you know, we talk about, I left these verses somewhere, they're not up here, so I'm gonna try to remember them. But we learn that Jesus is our righteousness. We learn in the scripture that Jesus is our peace. Over and over, his name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And what I love about this is righteousness always comes before Peace, if you got your Bible and you want to go quick, go to, go to Romans 5.1, and this illustrates this. You may be here today and you're thinking, I want to have peace with God. That's why I'm at church. I feel in turmoil. Until there's righteousness in your life, you will never be at peace with God. And you may be like, wait a minute, that sounds awfully works-based to me. Well, it's not dependent upon your work. It's dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ because it's only as we trust his work 
that we receive his imputed righteousness to our account. And then what happens? Romans 5 verse 1, this gives me fired up. This is awesome stuff. Look at Romans 5 1. Therefore, since we have been justified, what does justification mean? It's a courtroom word. It means we've been declared righteous in the counsel of the courtroom of God. How could we be declared righteous? Because I don't know about you, but my sin's ever before me. All the wages of sin is death. None of us in here can pretend that we can be holy in and of ourselves. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is supreme. And the reason he brings this type into play is he wants to show them, look at Melchizedek. He foreshadows Jesus Christ, who is the supreme one of all. And as we trust in him by grace through faith, we are justified by faith. And what does verse one say in Romans 5? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But not only just as Melchizedek was known for righteousness and peace, Jesus, it's the word antitype, is the word that means the type. If you ever find a type in the Old Testament, the fulfillment is called the antitype. The antitype is the substance of what the type is, a type of what? The antitype. And Jesus is the antitype. If, if Melchizedek is known for righteousness and peace, Jesus, the antitype, far surpasses Melchizedek. Second of all, just as Melchizedek had no genealogy pointing to the tribe of Levi, Jesus didn't have a genealogy going back to Levi. And what does that lead us with? It leads us to their genealogy was based on the appointment and the call of God. The appointment and the call of God was the basis of their genealogy, their connection to the priesthood. And, and you know, we think about this, this connection. This was God-ordained. I mean, we could have more time, and maybe we'll spend more time as we get started next time. Another one here is you've got, just as Melchizedek's priesthood had no beginning or end, and there's actually, maybe we'll do this again next time too, the actual wording when it speaks of Melchizedek's his long ongoing priesthood is different than what it even speaks of with Jesus. And I think what that means is it, it appears to go forever, but it's pointing to one who does go forever. He's eternal. Melchizedek is righteous and peace, but Jesus is that fulfillment. Melchizedek is appointed and called by God, but Jesus is the fulfillment of that. But then thirdly, Melchizedek has a priesthood that is long, long, long lasting, no beginning or end, but it reminds us of the eternal nature of Jesus's priesthood. It is forever. I was talking just yesterday. Me and John were talking about short and long term. Isn't it easy in this life to get focused on the short term and not the long term? Man, that's one of my biggest problems. I'm focused on everything today. But so often I can't get my head up and see tomorrow. I can't see what God is promising in the future. And here what we see is, is that, you know, I think about, wow, look for You realize we're, we're here, I'm preaching on this passage. It's been 4,000 years since the Genesis passage in Genesis 14. And I think about that as just the longest of time. And it's as if here we get tapped on the shoulder and it's like, hey, Melchizedek reminds us that the priesthood of Jesus 
is eternal. It goes forever. We keep going here. We see just as Melchizedek was recognized as greater. Now, I don't have time to reread this last part, but here's what I want you to see. If we go on down, well, I guess we will reread. Okay. I didn't mean to lie, but I did. Uh, look at verse 4 down to verse 10 really quick. We're Hebrews chapter 7, and we get to verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Here's the way the argument goes. He says, just as Melchizedek was greater than Abram, Christ is the greatest of all. And you say, wait a minute, how does the passage illustrate that Melchizedek was greater than Abram? Three ways. Number one, who paid tithes to who? Abraham paid tithes to this mysterious Melchizedek. Number two, who blessed who? The greater always blesses the inferior. You'd be like, wait a minute. Genesis 12 says that through Abram's line, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But in this case, Melchizedek blesses Abram. And finally, Levi hadn't even come around yet. And it's as if the author of Hebrews says, hey, by the way, it's sort of like this, guys. It's sort of like Levi wasn't even around yet. And because Levi came from the line of Abram, it's as if Levi paid tithes also through Abram. See what he's doing? He's saying this type. And what is the Holy Spirit seeking to show us? He's seeking to show us, I believe, that Melchizedek is greater. And just as Melchizedek is greater than Abram, Jesus Christ is supreme. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than the high priest. He's greater than the tabernacle. He's greater than the temple. You see what he's doing? He's building this argument and he's saying, look, as we get on the runway of Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10, understand something. This priesthood is unique. It is significant. It is based on the call and the appointment of God. I tell you, when I was looking at this, I was like, at first I was thinking, you know, where is the application? Where is the application? It was really Kent Hughes, Stephen Cole, that really unlocked this for me because I was missing the, the instruction of it. And then it was as if they said, hey, but wait a minute. Look at the type and remember who the anti-type is. I don't know about you, but man, this is good. This is good. This is rich. You know why? Because it shows us the greatness of Christ. Remember when we were talking about Hebrews 1 and 2? And I said, one sure recipe for apostasy, if you're in the church today, is having a low 
Christology, where you know Jesus in some of the stories, you know Jesus is this or Jesus is that, but when you learn who Christ is, it changes everything. And the author of Hebrews wants these Jews to understand Jesus is supreme. He's greater, but listen to this. Abram gave tithes to Melchizedek. You know what the word and the idea of what's given there means? This is fascinating. It means top of the heap. Top of the heap. Do you remember in Malachi, what was the prophet's declaration about the offerings of the people? Was it top of the heap or bottom of the heap? Were they offering their best or were they offering their worst? They were offering animals that had defilements. And what does he say to them? Abram took all those spoils from when he did that whole mission to get Lot, all the spoils of the battle. He comes to Melchizedek and there as he's facing Melchizedek, he looks at the pile and what does he take? The bottom of the pile? No, the top of the pile. How much more? does Jesus deserve? How much more is Jesus worthy of? This morning, I was thinking, this thrills me because Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Abram, in in, in this type, he's, he's paying tithes to Melchizedek, and we're reminded of the greatness of Christ. And if Abram saw Melchizedek, you know, as he should pay the tithes unto him as the priest of the Most High God, how much more should that be seen in the way we respond to Christ? This morning, what's greater in your life? Who's greater in your life? I know that often at church, we give church answers and we get around church issues by thinking religious things that are really not of God. But I want you to ask yourself this morning, who in my life is greater than Jesus? What in my life is greater than Jesus? And this morning, if the kindness of God so reveals the answer to your heart, I pray that what we're looking at in Hebrews chapter seven compels your heart to see that what you're placing above Christ is not greater than Christ because Jesus is supreme. There's one more here. We see just as Melchizedek gave a blessing to Abram. Oh, how Christ Jesus blesses us. Ephesians 1.3 we're given every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. You could go on and on, and I don't even want to get into today. I mean, there's a lot to chew on about the bread and the wine. Interesting, we know that Jesus gave bread and wine to his disciples. Is this intended to be a foreshadowing of that day? I don't know. I didn't say the text said that. I said it makes me wonder. But I will say this, just as Melchizedek refreshed Abram. Aren't you thankful this morning that Jesus Christ is faithful to refresh and nourish his people? What do we see as the antitype? Jesus is our righteousness and peace. He's our called and appointed high priest. He's our eternal high priest. He's supreme. He's worthy of our worship. He's our gracious blesser. On top of that, he's sovereign. As we leave today, I want you to chew on something. I want you to think about how many of you right now would agree that things look pretty grim and dark in the world? Anybody in here besides me? You know, it gets depressing sometimes, doesn't it? 
when you see all the indoctrination of our culture. I mean, it's just weird. It's like, it's like we want you to think this way and we'll do everything to make you think this way within three months. You know, we'll do everything we can to make you think this way. We will change what you desire, change what you love. And we sometimes can get a little bit off the mark in our looking to God and we can look down and we can look temporal and we start going, oh, woe is me. I'm in America and it's just such a bad place. It's dark. I don't like it. And we lose sight of the sovereignty of God. But let me ask you something. I was thinking, I read another guy say it, and it really hit my heart. Okay, how do you think Ur of the Chaldees was? You think it was a godly place with a lot of churches? No. God called a pagan man named Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and he set him on course. And what about this man, Melchizedek? If you trace where he was when he met Abram, he's surrounded by gloom. He's surrounded by darkness. And how in the world, what's the explanation for a man named out of Ur and a guy named Melchizedek to meet up in that meeting on Genesis 14? The only explanation is the promise plan of God. Let me tell you something. If God is faithful to orchestrate that meeting when the world was upside down 4,000 years ago, he's not going to forget his people today. And what did we just learn in Hebrews 6? That hope is trusting in the future promises of God that have yet to be revealed. And while he's pivoting here and he's moving till Melchizedek, it's as if he throws one in and says, oh, by the way, I got another example of the faithful promise plan of God. His purposes will not be undone. And in this passage, I give you an example of 2,000 years of the faithful promise plan of God. Be encouraged. It doesn't matter how dark it gets. Nothing will thwart the will of God. Nothing and if we lose sight of the promised plan of God, we will moan and complain and be dis disturbed and depressed. When we get our eyes on this, we say, oh no, the supremacy of Christ, his promised plan will be fulfilled. Another one here is, this is a great inner witness of the testimony of the Holy Spirit's authoring of the scripture. <laughs> Think about this, two obscure passages when you get to Hebrews 7 or, you, or Hebrews 5, verse 6, and Hebrews 5, verse 10, are you expecting a ton of verses that are going to develop about a man named Melchizedek? You're like, wait a minute. You mean that guy back in Genesis 14 that appeared out of nowhere and this just departed off the scene? You mean that guy mentioned in Psalm 110? And now we see that he's the pivot foundation of the line that Christ is tied to for the high priesthood? I love that because, you know, the argument goes like this. This is just nothing but a bunch of uh, religious fishermen seeking to write some book that is going to now convert the masses and deceive them for the ages. I tell you, sometimes the inner witness of the spirit working in the word is fascinating and comforting and just God glorifying. Be encouraged by that. The scripture's rich. You know, I learned one more thing and we're going to close. The, the, I always say this name wrong. 
the Latin term for priest is pontifex. You've heard that for Roman Catholicism. And sadly, there's been a lot of misuse and just, just awful theology that has come out of the Roman Catholic Church that is heretical. But you know what pontifex means? It means bridge builder. It's the Latin term for priest. I love this because that Latin word reminds you of something. It reminds you of this. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This morning, do you know him? Do you know, you remember in Hebrews 4, today, if you hear his voice, Today, if you hear his voice, and what is he calling him to do? He says, look, unlike the unbelieving, disobeying Israelites who received the good news with unbelief, today, if you hear the good news, if you hear his voice, receive the good news with, that was for effect, receive the good news with belief. I tell you, how tragic would it be if you're here today? This message lifts up Jesus Christ. He is supreme. He's greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than, than any priest. He's greater than any priesthood. And today, he's the only one worthy of our worship. He's the one who is the bridge builder that builds the bridge that we might come to God the Father. It's only through Christ. And today, do you know him? I was listening to a song this morning. It was one of those, you remember growing up, I don't know if your parents listened to Christian music, but sometimes my, I mean, my dad was a pastor and we listened to WMBW, 88.9, it still exists. And I listened to that thing and I would get in the car sometimes and I'd be like, oh my goodness, I'm tired of this. And, and, and they would play these little Christian praise tapes and sometimes I'd be like, dad, I just can't listen to this anymore. It's driving me crazy. But there was a day, I was thinking about it, it brought tears to my eyes. I heard one of these old songs. And I remember there was a day in my life, I don't know when it was, but I remember hearing that song. And I remember, you know what? Even as a kid, I remember hearing that song in my car. And I was a worshiper. It resonated with my heart. And as a kid in the back seat, as I was hearing those words, I was singing them in my heart to God. Are you a worshiper? Are you an observer? Are you one that just comes and sees what's happening and check in with what the pastor's saying about Hebrews? Are you, through these words in the Holy Scripture, are you compelled to worship Jesus? And I pray today you would see that this truly is God calling out to you in his word, that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And he's building this case, but please don't think for a second that you can be passive or neutral in response to these truths. The scriptures are calling us to repent of our sin and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ to save us from our sin. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for just my brothers and sisters in this room. I thank you, God, for just the opportunity to go through Hebrews with them. Lord, I love them. I thank you, God, for this journey that we're all going through. And I think, Lord, we're just all 
We know, we know it's true, but God, it's overwhelming to see how wonderful your word is. It's so rich. God, I pray that, that today that, that every person in this room would leave compelled to trust in Christ. And Lord, we recognize that's only, that's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. Neither Abram nor Melchizedek could make this happen. Melchizedek couldn't sign up and say, I want to be a priest of the Most High God. Abram couldn't say, I want to be the father of a nation and the line through which the seed of Messiah comes. Lord, it was by sheer grace. It was only by your mercy. And Lord, that's the same with us. I pray, Lord, today that through your grace and through your mercy, Lord, that people would trust you. They would look to you. I pray, God, that we would look and examine those things that are greater in our lives than Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would change what we love as we read and as we examine the beauty of Christ. Lord, you're the only one that can change our loves. But I pray the Spirit would, in our heart, give us a vision of who Jesus is. And Lord, that we would be eternally changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Is my